Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Morning, everybody. Glad you're here. We good, be? All right. Nope. We'll get there. So this is what happens when you grow out your beard and you don't trust your old microphone. That's what happened. And by the way, let me just make a short little comment on the beard and the hair for y'all. I know some of you don't like it. I understand this, but we have a new baptismal and a baptism coming up, and I'm doing whatever I can to vie to be the first to be the baptizee in the new baptismal, and so I'm making the best play that I can. All right, if you would, grab your Bible. Matthew chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. If you're visiting with us, my name is Will. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm not the primary teaching pastor. Brad is. However, he is down in Florida with his family, getting some good uh, quality family time. I think they went to a game yesterday. Uh, so certainly pray for him. Pray that his batteries would be recharged. Pray that they just have good, solid family time. Uh, if, if you didn't have a chance to hear the message last week, I was, I was sitting in the back and my wife leaned over to me to, I can't even remember what she said, but to say something wifey, which those of you husbands, you know what I mean. It had nothing to do with the sermon, but you still as a good husband had to lend an attentive ear. You know what I'm saying? You're like, I'm locked in. I want to be paying attention to this, but okay, I'm married. Two should become one. All right, hit me with your stuff. Right, and, and so as she started, I said, oh, j- just wait one second. And she was like, why? And I said, well, I, I really want to hear what Brad's saying in this, in this moment. And she said, I've told Brad this. She said, Will, it's the gospel. He says it every week and you know it pretty well. And, and I'm like, okay, I get that. I get that. I said, but you don't understand what he's doing right now, how, how impressive it is. And she said, well, what do you mean? And I don't know that I ever explained to her. What Brad was doing last week toward the end of the sermon is he was taking two very big truths and unwrapping them in a way that I hadn't seen done that well before of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And right now I'm telling you we're about to talk about temptation, which gets everybody in the room very excited to think about the temptations that they're struggling with. This is not something that people are like, oh yeah, temptation, yes. I would, I would like to subject myself to a sermon on temptation. Not many people raise their hand for that, but, but I just want you to take a breath. Here's the deal. If all we do is talk about temptation and sin, this is going to be a very dark, heavy, ugh, kind of a Sunday morning. It's not my desire. It's not God's desire. It's not the Spirit of God's desire. And it's not God's Word's desire. My hope is that when you get up off of that chair, you are more equipped to fight sin and find joy in your life. Because the moment I say temptation, many of us, our minds go into one of a couple of places. And, and, and I don't want you to feel like that's the way it is always going to be. It certainly should not. And so God has given us, through his word, his means of dealing with it. And, and since Brad set it up so well last week, I want to talk about how we fight temptation. How it is that we fight against the sin that dwells within us. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to read Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 11. And if you're a planner ahead, or you may want to stick a finger or a little offering note in Exodus chapter 17. Those are going to be our big, our two big texts that we'll be jumping back and forth between. And I just want to read it one time through, and then I'm going to pray for us. And we'll dive in. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. 
And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put your excuse me, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray together. Father, as we open up this text, I know one thing is true of every one of us in this room, whether we realize it or not, whether we like it or not, and that is that we fall into temptation. It is a universal truth of our human condition that we who were born in sin would fall into temptation. And yet, in this this small little text, these short 11 verses, we find an example and a hope and victory over the very temptations that cause our lives not just to go into a less optimal direction, but the temptations that invite in the very sin that would crush and, des- and destroy the soul that you created in your own image. And so, Father, I, I, as we read this on one hand, I pray that we would all, as a group of people, take a deep breath. We're all in the same boat. No temptation has come except that which is common to man. And Father, even as we are in this place, I I, I just recognize this from my own experience. I know this to be true, that before we get up and leave, the majority of us are prone to be tempted by something we see, something we think, some way of comparing ourselves to another in so many other ways. It, it, It is the nature of who we are. And just as Robert read in in Hebrews, Father, that that lack of perfection, that lack of living according to your word and your statutes, God, it brings about righteous wrath. But God, you are so good to us in that instead of holding out your fist, you held out your hand. You were willing to send your son to be crushed on our behalf, the one who did face temptation and trial just as we did, same manner, and yet was without sin. And so, Father, my my prayer and my pleading is that our eyes would not be so enamored with our own sin that we forget to look to the one who has victory over it, gives us hope in it, and shows us the example to walk through it, but that our eyes would find themselves simply, easily, faithfully resting on the cross and the work of Jesus. And God, if those words don't make sense to someone in this room, I pray that before we leave, that it would. I pray that you would rescue people from sin unto salvation and for those who are walking with you from sin as well. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Everybody said, Amen. Temptation is not uh, a fun thing to talk about. Um, it's not the kind of thing where I'm like, hey, anybody want to share a story? Anyone? Anything currently going on? 
I, I do remember this. I was probably, I want to say sixth grade. I was probably in the sixth grade. My mom will remember the story. And a buddy called me and he said, hey, a bunch of us are getting together to watch a movie. You need to come over and see it. And I'm like, oh, that sounds good. What are we watching? And he told me. And the movie that they were watching was a rated R movie. Well, Will wasn't allowed to see rated R movies in the sixth grade. And so I knew, oh, this is going to be a problem. Because here's the deal. All my friends are going to be there. And it's not just my guy friends. There are going to be females there too. And you know, I mean, there are going to be girls there. We're going to be down in his basement watching a movie. It's like the proverbial, maybe the arm will go around. Maybe, maybe it's a, ah, it was a scary movie. She'll jump like there's so many positive things that could happen for my social life that I could miss out on just because of the little R instead of the PG-13. Like, why? This is not fair. And, and I began, like, you know how it is. I began in that moment both lamenting my poor situation, being jealous of those who did not have the same law placed upon them, my friends who were allowed to watch rated R movies, and I began to get a little frustrated with God and angry with my parents. Why are their rules so much harder than my friends' rules? It's really not fair. And, and, and here's what I could have done. What I could have done is just said, hey, Mom, I'm going over to so-and-so's house to watch a movie. And she wouldn't have thought a thing of it, right? Like, I didn't have to advertise, and therein lied the temptation. But I wanted to fight it, and so I let it slip. Yeah, it's this movie. It's rated R. Now, this is the battle that we wage. I knew why I was doing that, because a piece of me did not want to fall into temptation. And the moment I let my mom know, the moment you let someone in accountability in your life know, it's harder to sin. But here's what I did. And parents, I'm sorry for your kids on my behalf two decades later, okay? Here's what I did. I told my mom so that she would be my support, and then I, I poured venom on her for being the support that I knew that I needed. Y'all know what I'm talking about, parents? You know, it's like, and, and us, as so like, how jacked up are we? That I'm like, oh, I really need this help. How dare you give it to me, right? Like, what is so messed up with us? But here's, here's the good news. Here's the good news. Will did not go and see that movie that night. And to this day, this is, this is not a legalistic thing. I still haven't seen that scary movie that was rated R, even though I do not feel the same, the same like, Oh, that would, that would be wrong for me. I feel like I have freedom in that now. But here's the thing. To this day, as small as that sounds, and we laugh about it. Like, you know, if you've, if you've got 30 years on yourself, 20 years, like you think about that and you kind of laugh. You're like, oh, not seeing a movie. But here's the thing. That has always stood in my life as this little benchmark that temptation was beatable. So when I started dating, right, or any other, when I got married, when all of the other temptations, like it was always just this little benchmark that if I cannot walk down the street and, 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 and indulge myself in this sin, then I can have my hand on a mouse on a computer and not indulge in sin. I can have a phone in my hand and not indulge in sin. I can be frustrated with my wife and not indulge in sin and fill in whatever blank you have. And this is what Christ gives us in his word. So for those of you note takers, here's how it's going to play out. We're going to look at Jesus is our example, Jesus is our hope, and Jesus is our victory. Those are the three tracks that we are going to hit. And, and, and I think there is a, 
a temptation and thinking about this story. If you grew up in the church, the story of Jesus' temptation, you've probably heard it a handful of times. And most of us think of it in the lines of, well, Jesus, it's Jesus, right? I mean, he's not going to, it doesn't matter how hungry he is, he's not going to be like, oh, yes, Satan, that, that would be a wonderful thing. Yes, please. Like, none of us think as we read this that Jesus is going to fall into temptation. And, and let me just take that little thought, and I'm going to hold it over here. One, Jesus was legitimately tempted. We're going to read this verse. He suffered when he was tempted. It's almost like you being dropped into the same place, okay? But the fact that we think this, that Jesus would never fall, brings this beautiful silver lining to your own lives. Let me explain what I mean by this. There is a long view on sin and a short view on sin. In your life, the long view, if you understand Scripture, should be something like this. I was born with a sin nature, and I need to repent of my sin. Once you become a Christian, the long view of sin turns into, I know that I am not going to be perfect, but I will repent, and I will continue to do that until I get to heaven, until I get to glory. That's the long view, biblically, of sin. The problem is, when we take that, and sin is in the short view, when the door's right here, and the knob is right there, and you want to reach out and touch it just because your flesh knows what it's going to enjoy on the other side, that not even the temptation, but the temptation of the temptation, the turning of the door is drawing you in. Here's what you need to know. The fact that you knew Christ would not fall into it is the same evidence that should cause you to know in the short term, you too This is the privilege of the Christian, by the way. You too can say no to sin. You can fight that thing. uh, Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It's going to pop up. Uh, uh, Verse 12 before says, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take, take heed lest he fall. So if you think you don't need to hear about temptation, take heed lest you fall. And it goes on. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let, this is great, God will not let you, you, Christian, be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. So yes, in the long term, I'm going to sin. In the short term, I can beat this sin. That's the correct perspective. And what happens is we flip it. We're like, well, I'm going to sin. So, you know, I mean, I'm going to sin. It's going to happen. That's, that's wrong. That's jacked up. That's not knowing your Bible. That's not being led by Christ. Does every, can I just get a head nod? Do y'all see what I'm saying in this long-term, short-term? Okay. All right. In that case, let's jump in. All right. I, I want to go to a little bit of a heady scripture first. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Now, as we think about Jesus, our example... The first thing was that Jesus was tempted without sin. When we think of Jesus as our example, we have to remember that he was tempted without sin. Otherwise, he's not really an example for us. He was tempted without sin. And secondly, we want to look at this as he was tempted for the sake of his brothers. Now, I I forgot to throw it up there, but I've already explained tempted without sin. Now I want to look at for the sake of his brothers. Now when I say brothers, I'm using a term that scripture uses, but it's a universal for people who are in the family of faith. So this is, this is guys and girls. I'm just using the masculine. Verse 10. Of Hebrew. By the way, I, I warned you, this is a thinking, like this is a heady verse. 
So if you just walked in church, if you haven't been involved in church for a long time, if the Bible is new to you, don't click out. Don't let it just fly over. Stick, stick with me. I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring it. I'm going to wrap it up. Verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. It was appropriate that God, in bringing many sons to glory, it was appropriate that God, in rescuing people, should make the founder of their salvation, would make Christ perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now this is, this is massive. We deserved to suffer because we weren't perfect. We aren't perfect. We deserve that. God requires perfection. And unless you have that, you can't rightly stand before God without incurring punishment. It's the truth of Scripture. We deserve to suffer because we weren't perfect. On the other hand, Christ, who is perfect, suffered in our place. We deserve to suffer because we're not perfect. Christ is perfect. So what he does is he says, hey, give me that suffering that I don't deserve, and I will give you my perfection, which you do not deserve. It's a switch. You are imperfect, needing suffering. He is perfect. So he takes your suffering and he gives you perfection. And inside of us, whether you're a believer or not, there's something inside of you that should be yelling, that's not fair. That's grace. That's the point. You see, it was never about being fair. It was about God rescuing people. And God's example for us in Christ was that he was tempted, just as we read, without any sin. Because when he stepped to the door, he said no. And he said no every single time. Not just because of who he was, but because of who he was going to rescue. The ones of us who would reach out and touch the doorknob. But then it goes a step further. And he comes and he rescues. And here's the thing. If that's not your perspective of Jesus, it doesn't matter to me if this is the first time you've walked into a church or the 4,000th time you've walked into a church. If that isn't your perspective on Jesus, you've missed the boat. And not just any boat, the only boat, the Jesus boat, the ark boat, the only boat that floats in the sea of your own sin is the boat that you're missing if you don't see Jesus that way. It's who he is. That's why he came and suffered. Check out verse 17. Same chapter, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, talking about Jesus, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. This is where we lose the ability to pull out the God card when we meet, read Matthew 4. We say, oh, Jesus was hungry, but he's God, right? So he was like, no, I can do it 40 days, 400 days, 4,000 days, whatever, man, I'm God. It's not that, no, no, no. He was made like his brothers in every respect. You know how we play it out with Adam and Eve? And we're like, if you were picked up, taken back all those years, and dropped into the garden, you would have done the same thing. Right? We say this all the time. That's what this verse is trying to bring out. It's basically saying, Jesus, 
is given your same nature, your same flesh and desires and things like this, and he's dropped into this temptation. But he doesn't falter. And the reason that he doesn't falter is not simply because of who he is, but because of who he desired to rescue. He was made like his brothers in every respect. The way you would have felt 40 days without food is the way he felt. The way you would have felt if somebody had offered you a shortcut around difficulty is the way he felt, but was without sin. Check out verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted. So if you ever thought it was Jesus just being like, by the way, this happens after his baptism, gets baptized, he's like, later John, great service man. Dove, God speaks, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And he's like, hey boys, I'll catch you, let's say 40 days, got to go do this desert thing, no biggie, I'll be back. That's not how it played out. Like, his temptation was legitimate suffering for him. He himself has suffered when tempted, therefore he is able to help those who are being tempted. If you don't memorize scripture, you should write this one down. There are pins in front of all of you. You all have hands. This is what my recommendation is. You can call it silly. You can call it what people did in the sixth grade. It works. Hebrews 2, 18, because he suffered, he's able to help those who are being tempted. That's huge. But what I love about it is the tense. I'm not an English guy, but I'm smart enough to know that it said he has suffered and I am being tempted. I get the idea that that's past and this is present. I'll give you an example. Every four to six months, I give Daniel Hoard a call. I don't see him in here. Maybe he is serving or something. I give Daniel Hoard a call. It's usually in one of two veins. I'm usually saying, hey, what do I do about this snake or this erosion problem or this whatever? Or I say, hey, I'm building this and I want to join these two woods. How would you recommend doing it? What, uh, what, what kind of glue could I use? Now, the reason I'm asking Daniel that is because my assumption is he's lived down the country longer than I have. He built this better than I could have. So I, I'm going to a guy who has done something, there you are, who has done something better than I feel like I currently can do something. I don't ask Logan how to build this stuff. <laughs> Look, I, I've been on mission trips with Logan. He got, he got really good with the hammer. We just had to show him which way to turn it. And he was like, he was on it. I get, Logan is my roommate right now. I can make fun of him as much as I want. If I'm going to talk to Logan, I'm going to say, hey, I want to learn how to memorize scripture in chapters so that when I sneeze, it comes out. That's what you talk to Logan about. Right? So here's what, here's what I want us to realize. We need accountability. We need brothers and sisters that we can go to. But don't miss this. You, if you're a believer are referred to as a brother or sister of Christ. The first place you should be going is to your big brother who did it right. Go to people who are doing it wrong. Sure, all right? Learn from their mistakes. Go to people who have dealt with it and are now walking in the newness of fighting temptation. Yes, but what I want you, before anything else, I want you to realize you want to run to Jesus when you're tempted. You want to. He's dealt with it. You're dealing with it. This is how we do advice. Go to the guy who knows how to deal with it. That's Christ. 
I'll tell you how to do that, but before, I need to know that you want or that you know you need to want to go to Jesus. Not just how do I do it, but do I want to even be there? Secondly, Jesus is our hope. Matthew 4, we're going to go, go look back at it one more time. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Matthew chapter 4, these 11 verses, every time Jesus responds to the devil, he responds using Scripture. Specifically, he uses a scripture out of Deuteronomy chapter 6 or Deuteronomy chapter 8. The reason that he is doing that is because there is this incredible connection between what Jesus is going through and what God's people were going through in their wilderness wandering after the Exodus in Exodus chapter teens. All right? And and, and so there is this, and, and we see this because Jesus is tempted for 40 days. They are in the wilderness for 40 years. That Jesus is in a desert wilderness. They are in a desert wilderness. God led Jesus into that testing. If, if you miss it, look at verse 1, chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted. That this was not a mistake. This was God's plan from the beginning. And if we look into Exodus chapter 17, we realize that God led them. But we didn't even have to look at the verse. The Israelites have kind of been doing this number following this flame at night and this cloud by day. It, it was a much better GPS than what we deal with. I just got a new phone. So glad to have a new phone because for whatever reason, when the last update kicked, my GPS went all on me. And for whatever reason, I would be in the middle of town and it's all like, GPS signal lost. I'm like, no, it's not. You're just not good, okay? You don't know what you're talking about. I promise the satellites are there because my buddy's phone's working just fine. But, but they had a much better GPS. Corny joke, God positioning system, end of corny jokes. Because it was literally right there, and it was not small. It was a fire. That, and it wasn't like a fire. It was like a column of fire. It was a column of cloud. It, it was too hard to miss, and that's exactly where God led them. Jesus quotes scripture. So let's look at the first response of Christ. We're going to look at the very first one. Verse 3. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's do our first jump back. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. Here's what it says. What is Jesus referring to? This is Moses speaking to the people of God. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with men. What is Jesus thinking about these 40 days while he's starving? He's thinking about his father taking care of his people. That these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you didn't know, your fathers didn't know, that he might make known, make to you known, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. A temptation that we struggle with is we are tempted to put our value and our validity in comforts and possessions. 
Now, you may not think of bread as a comfort or a possession, but if you didn't have any, you would. This is not the easiest analogy for us Americans because we have pantries and we have fridges and we have deep freezers and we have candy drawers, right? Like, this is not the easiest analogy for us. We've got food. Y'all have food in your purse, Mom. Like, right now, I'm talking about hunger, and you're like, I actually am. (laughs) I'm glad he brought that up. I'd forgotten that I was almost hungry. And then this is like, if you were there, you would have realized this. We are tempted to put our value and our validity in our comforts and in our possessions. This is the air that we breathe. Not for Christ. Where Israel fails, he will not. Where we fail, he will not. Let's look at response two. Then, this is verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. I love history. Let me give you a little bit. When the devil... Which, by the way, I can't preach on this. There's not enough time. The fact that the Bible says uh, the devil took him and, uh, and set him on the pinnacle, I don't like that wording. I want Jesus... I want the devil to say, Hey, Jesus, do you mind? And Jesus is like, all right, fine. Like, but, but this is the fullness of the temptation that exists. Jesus is on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, it, it, it overlooked the Kidron Valley. It was the southeast of the temple. It was referred to as Solomon's Porch. Back then, it was a much larger drop than it is today because there's been so much erosion into the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley, historically, was a place where a lot of people were buried. You can go through the Old Testament, you can find this, that there were a lot of bones and things buried in the Kidron Valley. The height at this point was about 300 feet. That's hard for you. The Aflac building is 246 feet. So imagine standing on top of the Aflac building and then getting a 25-foot ladder, putting a little chair on top, and then putting another 25-foot ladder... And doing this number. That's what Christ is looking over. And and what's so interesting to me is he's looking over a valley where death is. Now there are two temptations tucked into this. The temptation for Christ to use his ability for selfish means. And the temptation for Christ to, to receive glory in a way that was not intended by his father. You see... If Jesus had jumped, first of all, it would not have been in line with the scripture that Satan is is saying here. He's talking about Psalms 91. And it's not saying, hey, you don't need to buckle your seatbelt. Have fun playing in traffic. God's got your back. That's not what it's saying. But that's what Satan was encouraging him to do. Look, if you're you're the son of God, just jump off. God's not going to let you get crushed. And in that was tucked in this reality that in a very populous place, had Jesus jumped off, and Jesus could, don't get this wrong. It's not like Jesus couldn't handle it. He's like, well, 246, I could do that, 300 all of a sudden. No, that's not how it played out. Jesus could have done a backflip if he wanted. He walked on water. He tells the ocean when to be quiet. He's in control. He can handle 300 feet. The point was, it, I mean, imagine that. Some guy jumps off the Aflac building and it's like, ah. <laughs> Might I recommend that'll be in the ledger? Might I recommend your phones might go boop, boop in the next second or two? That there are going to be news cameras? He's going to be taken to Xavier's school for gifted youngsters or something along these lines? 
But whatever happens, it's going to have everybody's attention. But think about how many times Jesus pushed the attention away. It's not my time. See, Jesus was not coming as reigning king. He was coming as suffering servant. He will come again as reigning king and warrior. But this was not his time. We are tempted to use our abilities selfishly. Some of these are talents, God-given abilities. Some of these are spiritual gifts. But we are tempted to use our abilities selfishly. In addition, we're, we're tempted to not trust God's provision. Jesus' response to this, if we look, he says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What is Jesus thinking about? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Here's what it says. Jesus is quoting, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test at you, as you tested him at Masa. Masa means testing. Why is he talking about, this is what he's quoting, but why? Why is Jesus thinking Deuteronomy 6.6 when he's talking to the devil and he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test? Certainly because it answers the question. But in addition, this is where I wanted you to have your thumb. Exodus chapter 17, verse 1. This is what was going on. Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. If you drop down to verse 7, you're going to see the answer. And he called the name of the place Massah. This is the same place Jesus is talking about when he's being tempted by the devil. What happened there? Look at verse 1. I'm going to jump around a little bit. Verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness according to the commandment of the Lord. They are exactly... Here's a note for you. They're exactly where they're supposed to be and they're being tempted. Just because you're being tempted doesn't mean you're in the wrong place. It just means God's got work in you yet. It just means he's proving the the value of your faith or showing you your your fallibility so that you will cling to him all the more. Verse 2, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test God? Why is Jesus thinking about this? Why is he saying, Do not test the Lord your God, quoting Deuteronomy 6, which points back to this place called Massa, where the people were, quote, testing God for being thirsty. In first read, it's not fair. Here's the deal. God created us for like 85-some percent water. If there's none around us, things go bad pretty quickly, right? So being like, hey, I'm thirsty, is not necessarily a bad response. It's not the saying, hey, I'm thirsty. It's the, where's the water? God, where you at? Because here's the thing. As, this is, as they're saying, God, where are you at? There's a cloud, like right there, and they're like, God, where are you at? There's some dude like in the back corner chowing down on manna. God, where you at? It showed up that day because of God. They're sitting here, oh, where are we going to get water? Two chapters before, God's like, you needed water? Okay, here you go for water. Here's the problem, verse 7. He called the name of the place Massa because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is he there? Let me make the connection. Them saying to a God who is there every day, a God who has made a way for them to eat every day but only that day, a God who has given them water when they need it, and they're like, oh, we want more, send some quail to run through the place. The God who has done that has set it up in such a way that every morning they wake up and boom, there's food. 
And they're supposed to just get enough for that day. That's why we pray, give us this day our daily bread. The reason we do that is because that prayer is a mirror image of God's desire that you not always have your, your soul's fridge so full that you don't feel like you need God. And so what would happen is that bread, that manna would start to rot and go rancid and worms would come in it if they kept it for more than a day. Except for this one day before the Sabbath when God made it all of a sudden appear but now it had a two-day expiration. Do you realize how crazy that is? The, God's people could set their watch by the faithfulness of God. Is there manna? Oh, must be morning and God's faithful again. Monday, Tuesday, same. Wednesday, same. Thursday, same. And, and then all of a sudden you get to the day before the Sabbath and they're like, oh, double portion, sweet. Boom, boom. Then the Sabbath hits, nothing. Do you, do, do you realize how incredible that miracle is? It's, in, it's insane the way that God provides. And what they're doing is when they say, God, are you there? And there's like a fire almost burning their back, right? When they say that, it's like we have a lot of runners in this room. We also have a lot of not runners. But we have a lot of runners. It would be like one of the run- I'll give both of you a play in this. If you're in the middle, sorry, you're on your run. If you're a runner... Imagine you've been prepping for this marathon and you're going at it. You're halfway through. You're fighting through a a cramp and a stitch. You're just waiting for the dude holding water or whatever it is. You're going into your happy place. You've got your whatever. You are pumping. And then one of the non-runners just like comes in from the woods next to you. And it's like, so you're going to run this thing or what? And the runner's like, what are you talking? I am literally running the race. And you just came in from behind a tree? And you're going to ask, it's the mom who's cooking dinner. And as the, <laughs> the 12 or the 13-year-old boy upstairs, right? Mom's got on her apron. Let's go on 1950s with the illustration. She's got her apron on. Stuff's bubbling on the stovetop. The aroma of the food is filling the house. She's wiping sweat from her brow. She's got the baby in one hand, right? Like giving it milk and knocking parmesan cheese onto the spaghetti right she's doing this and then the 13 year old boy 12 year old boy comes half not all the way he's got stuff to do he comes halfway down the stairs looks around hey are we gonna have dinner that's what god's people are doing it's like are we gonna have dinner you're in the presence of dinner why are you a punk it's last one these are fun it's the dad who takes his family on vacation. This is my favorite illustration. Takes time off of work, which maybe he has, maybe he does not. Takes time off of work, drops Benjamin after Benjamin after Benjamin that nobody knows about. It just happens, right? Loads the kids up in the car, drives them down to Orlando, swiping the car to pay gas all the time because we have to run the air the whole time and we can't roll down the window, right? You get there to see some 18-year-old part-time college student with mouse ears on, right, for your kid doing the whole the picture thing. The kids are a little cranky. They get out of the car. You get into the hotel. Everybody's settled, Right? But the kids, man, they, they've just been in the car. Like, this has just been a problem. So they look at the dad and they're like, are we ever going to have fun? Are we ever going to? And the dad's like, we're in the midst of fun. You're having fun. <laughs> this is fun. Right? This is what God's people are doing. They're in the presence of God. And they're like, are we going to die of thirst? 
Huge fire over here. Food falling from the sky. We're just going to die of thirst. We are tempted, very tempted, to not trust in God's provision. This is, let's move from the fun to the uh for a second. This is when you take matters into your own hands. This is when you're not cool with the timing of God. This is when you assume that your way must be God's way because it makes sense. Let me say that again. Because this is huge for like Christian-y folks. My way must be God's way because it makes sense. Makes sense to me, must be God's way. Forget the fact that the majority of time, God's way is a little bit crazy on the beginning. And it doesn't really make sense until you look back after days, weeks, months, or years. And you're like, oh, that actually made a lot of sense. That's the way it works. And we are so tempted to not trust in God's provision. Taking things into our own hands. The last one. Swinging back over Matthew chapter 4. Last temptation. <clears throat> Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. This is the hardest to, for me to picture. I, I don't know how this played out. The other two, I, I can kind of get an image in my mind. Maybe you're the same way. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written... You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. What is it that Christ is thinking about? He's thinking about Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God, I love this, in your midst is a jealous What Satan was offering was a shortcut. Jesus was, is, going to get all glory. Jesus was, is, going to have all kingdoms before him. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's going to happen. What Satan was offering was a way to get there without suffering. A way to get there without the difficulty. A way to get there without the cross. And this is the same temptation that he offers to you. It's, it's the shortcut. It's a shortcut at work when you know that you can manipulate a situation or a person. The temptation to do it. It's the temptation to fold on your integrity. Doesn't matter how old you are, that truth is truth. Whether it's folding on your integrity, turning in an assignment turning in an exam with your name on the top, but the answers aren't yours. Turning in a paper. But it's the same integrity when you decide to fold or not fold on speaking truth. Because a lie would just make things so much better. It'd be an easier shortcut. It's not going to hurt anybody in the long run. Except for the fact that it's sin and it'll crush your soul. It's the same shortcut when you get into a relationship and you desire the other person, and you realize, like, man, we've been together for two years. We're going to get married. We, we don't really need to, like, come on. We really need, it's the same lie, the same temptation, the same shortcut. 
we are tempted to take the shortcut. But Jesus is our victory. And Jesus will succeed, and He does succeed, and He did succeed where Israel failed. And Jesus will, does, and did succeed where you failed as well. Let's end here. Matthew chapter 4, verse 11. Jesus is our victory. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The help, if you're looking down to take notes, I'm throwing quotes up. The help that Jesus rejected because it was offered by Satan with strings attached is now delivered to him with no shame and the fullness of enjoyment when the angels show up because he did not cave into temptation. He has attained victory. And though you think, oh, that's great, Jesus attained victory. I kind of thought that all along. His victory is not his alone, but it's yours as well. If this 11 verses read differently, there'd be no reason for you to walk in this room. His victory is your victory if you believe in Christ, and His victory can be your victory if you do not yet believe in Christ. So let me tell you, nuts and bolts, how you can get out of your chair and have fought sin. How how you can leave this place more equipped to fight temptation. Many of these you already know. In fact, the biggest temptation is not one of the four that I listed. It's not the temptation to put your value and validity and comfort or passions. To use your ability selfishly, to not trust in God's provision, or to look for the shortcut. Today, that is likely not going to be your biggest temptation. Your biggest temptation is going to be to do nothing about it. That's going to be your biggest temptation. You're going to be tempted to tarry. And this is how it plays out. And it doesn't matter how old you are. You're going to be tempted instead of picking up your Bible to just pick up your phone and scroll through Facebook or Pinterest or Instagram or the one I didn't name that you now feel like you got to pass on because I didn't say it. You don't anymore. It's, it's going to be that temptation. Sorry, I couldn't read my notes for a minute. Got it. It's going to, it's going to be that temptation mostly young men in this room, to veg out with a controller in your hand, which has now creeped its way into married life and even married life with kids. It's going to be the temptation to pick up a controller and play a video game for two hours, three hours, and ignore your wife and your kids. That's going to be your temptation to tarry and do that. It's going to be the temptation to pick up the remote and decide that football or Netflix or whatever your show is, is more important. And you'll get to that whole fighting temptation thing later. You just tarry. And if that doesn't hit you, if you're maybe in an older generation, and I say this with much more humility than the other three. I, I do. If you're in an older generation than mine, I think the temptation is to look back as though those were the good old days. And to not realize that when Ephesians 2.10 was written, that God prepared works for you to walk in beforehand, that verse does not have an expiration date. And whatever age you are, you are the perfect age to be serving God. 
And to look back, I can't even remember the verse, it's a proverb. He who, he who takes his eye from the plow and looks back is not fit for service in the kingdom of God. I don't remember the reference. It's the temptation as you age to look back and think that your best days have already been spent. The most energy and ability that you had for the kingdom of God has come and gone. If that was the case, you wouldn't be with us right now. If he didn't have a purpose for you, you would not be here. So how do you fight sin? I'm going to go through this list very quick. One, you're doing it. Meeting together, fellowshipping with other believers is a way to fight sin. It reminds us that we're not alone in the fight. The fact that we're going to take communion in a moment reminds us that we have a common enemy, a common struggle, and that all of us are in the same place. When we forsake meeting together, we lose that benefit of being able to fight temptation. Secondly, when we pray, we communicate with God, and when we are communicating God, it repels sin. You don't want to be in the presence of an almighty God when you got all your junk. It's embarrassing. It's shameful. And so prayer causes us to push out sin and to repent of our sin. Worship. In a moment when we stand up and we sing together. Moments ago when we stand up and we sing together. As Paul said, quoting Ephesians as well. Worship is meant to renew your soul. Renew your spirit. God His word says, 2 Corinthians 5, that he has placed a new heart in you. You had a heart of stone. In fact, we sang about that. Now you have a heart of flesh. The thing about a heart of flesh is it works when it's moving. And worship gets us in a place where our soul is moving and united with the Spirit of God. Service. And by the way, I'm not giving you exactly how to do this because it's going to be different in all of your context. The question is, are you worshiping when you're here? Are you showing up? Are you plugged into a community group or something so that it's not just an hour and a half on a Sunday morning? Are you serving people? Are you praying? When we serve people, it, it is the opposite of giving into temptation and sin because sin is always about self. Service is always about others. Unless you're like, did you see how much soup I just gave? Like, obviously that's not what I'm talking about. Service is about others. Sin is about self. And when we serve we, we build within ourselves enough grit to fight sin. Evangelism. This is a hard one for a lot of us. Evangelism is an incredible way to fight temptation because nobody wants to look like a fool. Nobody wants to go and say, hey, do you know about Jesus? And then the person says, hey, did you know you just cut me off in traffic? Do you know Jesus? Nobody wants that. When, when we guard our witness, it causes us to fight the battle of turning the knob and opening the door to sin. And finally, in my opinion, well, in Jesus' opinion, the biggest way, you've got to have one of these. This is it. It's the only offensive piece of equipment we have in Ephesians. There's, there's a handful of them in front of you. If you don't have one, we'd love for you to take one. I want to read two verses out of Psalms 119 to encourage you with this. How do you fight temptation with God's word? You read it and you memorize it. And and here's the deal. You know that already. But are you doing anything about it? Remember, your temptation is going to be to tarry. Not to know, but to not do. Psalms 119, if you've never read it, it's the longest psalm. I'm not going to read it, uh, the whole thing. It's the longest chapter, not only in Psalms, but in the entire Bible. Verse 97 to 98. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. Do you see that? Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. 
for it is ever with me. And here's what we do. We always want to say, okay, well, what do I need to read? And how much do I need to read? How do I check my box off? Forget about what and how much. Can I just tell you how often you need to read your Bible every day? And that's not Will's opinion. When, when Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, when we are told to, give, to ask God to give us this day our daily bread, when manna came in daily increments, when the psalmist in verse 1 says, on uh, day and night I meditate on your word, I will give you a very easy one. You should open this every day. That what you read, how much you read, let that be left up to the Spirit. But hear this, if you're a believer, you should be reading this every day probably at least two times. You should be reading this. That's kind of moving into legalism, I'm sorry. But you should be reading this. Secondly, memorize it. Why? Psalms 119, 11. I have stored up your word in my heart. I memorized it. I stored up your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. If you've never memorized scripture, I don't know how to explain it except in in my own life. When I'm struggling with a sin and I memorize Scripture that applies to that brokenness, there is this incredible thing that happens when I begin to reach for that door and I look up and there's a Scripture printed on top of it. When we write God's Word on our heart, it gives us the ability not to sin. Don't wait. Don't tarry in your temptation. Decide now, decide today that you're going to fight it. You have the means. It's a matter of you going after it. Pray with me. Father, my prayer is the prayer that I find in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. He told us to humble ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So at the proper time, He may exalt you. Father, I pray that we would humbly throw ourselves on the hand of God. I pray that we would cast all of our cares and our anxieties on You. Because You care for us. Father, make us sober-minded. Make us watchful. Our adversary, as we read, our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And Father, if there is someone in this room who the enemy is seeking. And they are not trusting on the boat of Christ. The only thing they can cling to to hold them up in the sea of their own sins. I pray that they would look away from themselves and that they would look to you. That they would resist the devil. That they they would become firm in the faith as I pray all believers would be. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by our brothers throughout the world. And Father, may this be true of us that after we have suffered a little while, just as Christ did, the God of all grace, who gave us His perfection in exchange for our brokenness, that He has called us to His eternal glory in Christ. Father, I pray that You would restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. To You be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.